Welcome to FO Podcasts. With me is Martin Plout. He's an author. He retired from the BBC, covering Africa. He also runs half marathons at a fast clip. Naturally, he's thrilled by South Africa's victory in the World Cup. He is South African, but he now lives in very pleasant bourgeois surroundings in London. Welcome to FO Podcasts, Martin. Thank you very much. Uh, pleased to be with you. Thank you. Martin, um, one of the topics we've been discussing has been this uh, recurrence of coups in Africa. And since you've covered Africa for so many decades, uh, paint us a picture of what is going on. Well, there are many things that have come together at the same time. And that is why there's no single easy to uh, encapsulate answer to, to the question of the coups. But you're absolutely right. They've been in the last 50 years. There've been just in excess of a hundred coups uh, in Africa, and if you take that against the rest of the world, there've only been 250. So you can see Africa has had far more than its fair share of coups, and many of them have succeeded recently. Indeed, they have. Uh, but the the point is that they really represent, apart from a few outliers, one particular strand. Of Africa, and that, in a sense, is the interconnection between the Sahel, which goes all the way from Mauritania to Somalia, and the rest of Africa, uh, and it also is along the divide, which is the the Arab African divide and the Muslim Christian divide. Now, that's only one element of all of this, but it does sort of show you that there is probably some kind of uh, Tension there. It's one the African Union doesn't like talking about because the African Union, of course, represents the whole of Africa, yeah. all its fifty-four, uh, I believe. Yes, depends 54. how you count yeah. them. Um, states that are part of Africa, and but that that is one element in it. I see. So, explain that element a bit more because there is, of course, uh, North Africa. Which is almost entirely Muslim, uh, all the way from Morocco to Egypt. Uh, then comes the Sahel, and then below that, um, most of Africa is largely Christian. Um, no, that's right. Uh, 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 and and the Sahel is where the two meet. Exactly. Of course, you missed out the Sahara in the middle, but yes, yeah, between yes, North no, Africa did, and the did. Sahel is, exactly. is, is the, the Sahara. Sahara. That's yes. true. That's true. But not very many people live there. It's a harsh, huge desert. There are some some roaming bands and there are indeed groups, but it, it's a harsh life in the Sahara. Very harsh, but it has never been the barrier that everybody sort of assumes it to be. That I certainly would assume it to be. Uh, it has always been somewhere where people came and went, and where there have been trade routes. I mean, the trade routes go back centuries, of course, and not just along the Nile, but across the the whole of the Sahara. There've been massive trade routes. And, and who did they take? Now, this is this yeah. is the key point: <laughs> is that they brought salt, gold, and slaves, mm. and it was the slave element, in a sense, which underlines the relationship between the north. And the South, between the Arab world and the Christian world, mm. and that, in a sense, is one of the divides. Now, of course, that only came about after the arrival of Islam, which crossed the whole of North Africa. What after about seven hundred um, AD, and so you, that is the after that period, you have Berbers 
particular who, who drive downwards through ancient Mali, Ghana, and the Sokoto Empire. And the, the Moroccans defeated the, uh, the Sokoto Empire. They, it, was, it was crushed. And in a sense, out of that comes that relationship, comes this long slaving pattern, which also is replicated on the Nile itself. Excellent. So the coups are in part because of that divide. And explain to me then, how does it manifest itself in the modern post-colonial so-called nation states all along the Sahel? Well, in a sense, this, the thing that happened after that slave trade, of course, was the construction of the modern system of, of Africa and the, the African states, which were colonial creations. Yeah. The Gambia famously makes no sense. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> along the river. Exactly. A sliver so, along yeah. the river. <laughs> yeah, it's a tiny uh, English or British uh, colony. Both sides are French, of course. You're yeah, absolutely exactly. right. And uh, the... But, you know, Nigeria, Ghana, all the other states were, in a sense, creations of the British, the French, the Germans, uh, or whoever it was that was, was, or the Portuguese, of course. Yeah. And um, out of, of those, in a sense, it comes the relationship between the people who gained power at independence in the 1960s, who were mostly people who had relationships with the West. Mm -hmm. And the people that they looked down upon and who didn't benefit from the system were people from the North. And that produced, in a sense, a replication of the North-South Christian-Muslim trade. Because don't forget also, after uh, the, um, the 1450s and the arrival of the Portuguese off the coast of Senegal and, and the beginning of European slavery, of course, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Africans were then taken, many of them from the north, through Africa, through the Christian bits of the colonies, and off to, to America. So slavery takes place in two directions. It goes north with Arabs taking um, Christians previously, but then it, in a sense, reverses and the opposite happens with a lot of Muslims being taken. For example, the, the Sokoto Caliphate exports perhaps 175,000 people, mostly Muslims, to Baha'i in Brazil. Uh, on a largely unknown um, feature of the story, how does that pertain to, say, Niger, where there's been a coup, a successful coup, and of course, other neighboring Francophone countries where have, there have been coups. So how does all of this play out today? Is it just an ambitious strongman from a particular ethnic group resting power because politicians are corrupt? Is it very powerful ethnicities in the military seizing power when they get a chance? Is it just random? What is going on? Well, it's all of those things. But the reality is that what, what you tend to have is that one family, ethnic group, tribe, if you like, uh, grabs power and then holds on forever. I mean, the, the Bongo family in Gabon held power for 56 years. That's now, true. I mean, that is one heck of a long time. And what oh, they... Almost as bad as the Nehru family in India. <laughs> <laughs> I, leave, I leave that to you. Uh, but the, the, the problem was that if you, if you hold on to power indefinitely yeah. and refuse to share power 
either with your with people outside your family or outside of your ethnic group, in a sense, what you say to the rest of the country is, well, the only thing you can do is turn to the any other institution, and the other institution generally is the army, because your own family can't be bothered to go and sit in some godforsaken military post in the middle of nowhere, month after month after month, they want to enjoy the high life. So generally, the army has not come from the ruling family. Yeah. So what happens is that the first generation chap is uh, a street dog and fights his way to power. Then his children and grandchildren become poodles who live in palaces. You and have another street dog comes exactly. around and chews up the palace poodle. <laughs> exactly. You, you have it in one. That is exactly what happens. So, so that, that, is, that is the second relationship. Yeah. So, so the first one is the, is the North-South tension. The second yeah. one is the, is the idea of uh, you know, entitlement, that you can uh-huh. hold on to power indefinitely. Yeah. And then the third one really is the way in which the French reinforced both of these tendencies the British basically, when they, when they, when colonialism came, they left. They left Africa, and they said to Africa, "It's up to you. You must you must do what you like." The French did not. They basically had a process of where you could become a citizen, mm. a French citizen, if you went if you were a member of the elite and had the right educational processes and the right standing in society, you could become a French citizen, and it gave you completely different status. And people operated in that way for yeah. you know for, for a long, long time. I and mean, the French football team is fundamentally Africans who became French citizens and ended up living in France and now represent France. Exactly. And the the problem was, of course, that that meant that, that in a sense exacerbated the other the other tensions and divisions that there were in in society, because people then thought, not only are you being controlled by an elite, we're being controlled by an elite, which is, in a sense, answerable to Paris and not answerable to us. So there was a, there was a deep underlying discontent mm-hmm. with what happened. Now, I'm glad you mentioned France, because France, even after the collapse of its empire, continued a shadow empire, an informal empire, and France controlled monetary policy, France still held uh, the commanding heights of the economy in many of these francophone countries. And now the French seem to be on the back foot and it is Russian mercenaries who are taking their place. Well, so what's going on there? Well, that's the next stage in all of this. Of course, there were tensions uh, during the uh, the Cold War because everybody fought out there was a huge fight in Africa between the Americans and the and the Russians or the Soviets, as it was then. Yeah. But in a sense, this has been replicated now and has been renewed under Putin, who looked to the Wagner Group to as a cheap and cheerful way of exercising power in uh, in Africa, as they have in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And he, there were only perhaps a, a thousand of them. But in the right circumstances, with the right equipment and the right backing, they did well. Now, of course... And they're, they're all the way from Mali to Central African Republic. Indeed, they are. And there are Africans on streets waving Russian flags. Ah, but there's an interesting point about that. Yeah. Now, two things have happened since then. The first thing is, of course, that, that the Wagner Group is no longer um, active. Uh, Provozhin, who was the head of it, was killed in an, in the uh, helicopter crash, the no, mis- plane crash, private jet. I believe. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, you know, which was which was, shall we say, uh, 
unexplained, or well, we it have was a fair completely idea. Completely an accident, Martin. <laughs> of remember, course it remember. Was. Of course it was. <laughs> How can I possibly think that it was anything else? Uh, after it's he, just, it's just um, after yeah. he challenged Putin yeah. himself, he marched on on Moscow, and yeah. that was the end of him. It's just a happy coincidence, uh, just as one of unhappy the... coincidence. Surely, <laughs> I mean, we can't wish death on him. Anyway, uh, happy for Putin. Yes, Vladimir. very happy for Putin. Yeah. And since then, there are now two other um, groups that he has uh, put in its place. The one is called Redat, and it was founded in 2008 by Russian paratroopers and is much closer to the Russian intelligence. So he's, mm -hmm. in a sense, taken the Wagner group in-house. Mm -hmm. And there was a recent ad, I believe, which said, Wagner is the past. If you're really interested in real work in Africa, then the Ministry of Defense and Redat PMC is your choice. So that is, that's on the 18th of August it was, it was posted. Mm -hmm. So you see, they are now involved, but they're not just involved at the level of putting boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. There's another whole parallel industry that is not well understood. So uh, talk uh, to us about that parallel industry, as I understand it from some of my friends, particularly French friends who have spent a long time in Africa, is that Russians are training local troops, Russians are infiltrating various different positions. In a way, they say this is the privatized, more efficient model um, of the Soviet playbook. It's almost as if the Soviets decided we can't do it ourselves, so let's have a modern-day British East India Company. <laughs> Exactly. No, Robert Clives. Exactly. That's exactly what's happening. But there's, there's something else that I wanted to highlight, which yeah. is that the, alongside the, the, the hard guys, there's then another whole set of operations which go on, which are at the level of um, internet, playbook, ah, Twitter, yes. Instagram, and all the others. Yeah. And these are mostly outsourced yeah. to to Africans, to Nigerians and Ghanaians, who are then paid to put up the appropriate message yeah. in, an, in an African context. And of course, they're superb at doing it. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's ever been tried to be scammed by a Nigerian to extract money from them, and if you haven't, I don't know, you've probably never been on the internet. No, no, I, I, I have had that fortunate experience. <laughs> well, exactly. It's a good education. <laughs> it's a very good education. Yeah. Very good at it. Yeah. So they, they use the same skills, in a sense, just now working for Putin. He pays and he, he, it's outsourced to them. So uh, just very quickly, um, my co-author, um, Glenn Carl, who retired from the CIA, um, thinks Surkov, I think his name is Vadislav Surkov, the man who has uh, mastered the dark arts of the internet and basically Putin's spin doctor uh, and the doctor of misinformation, really. Uh, he thinks he is one of, uh, Glenn thinks he, that Surkov is one of the most influential people of our era. And it's frightening that not enough um, uh, Westerners have studied him. And I, think, I think you're right. And that is because what is happening, as I say, in parallel with the hard yeah. guys, is this in disinformation campaign. Mm -hmm which is being run. And it is being seen in Africa and it uses all the most modern, the most appropriate mm. systems of dissemination. 
And when you see so Facebook, young men, YouTube, yeah, all of those, WhatsApp, the whole shebang. Those. And when you see young people on the streets of Niger, it's not necessarily because they think that, that Russia is a great idea. Mm. Most of them wouldn't even be able to put it on a map. Mm. But they have been told through their social media uh, uh, internet, uh, you know, connections that this is the answer, that, they are, that they are, the French should be replaced by the Russians and the Russians will bring them happiness and joy. Ah, uh, I see. Indra Gandhi taught that. <laughs> well... <laughs> A rather different <laughs> environment, yes. The Russians probably did bring her joy. <laughs> right. Uh, excellent. So, so much so for this uh, extraordinary operation that the Russians are carrying out, marrying both the iron fist and the velvet glove. Uh, what does this mean for Africa? Are the French going to be pushed out? Are we now going to see... Uh, basically a Russian-dominated Sahel, or not necessarily a Russian-dominated, but a Russian-influenced Sahel? I think we will see a Russian-influenced Sahel, and I think it will continue for a long time. A long and time, indeed, meaning 10, 20 years? Oh, yes, easily. I see. Uh, and will be well, it's well entrenched. But I think that there is something else that will happen, which is, of course, uh, as usual, Africa will, in the end... Uh, envelop and gobble up everybody. Uh, nobody succeeds in Africa except Africans. So I, I assume in the end it will fail because mm. I don't think you can control a, con a continent like Africa. It's far too complex. Absolutely. But the, the, the other side of it is that uh, there may be some benefits. There may be some nations that do well. But the big loser in this entire system, apart from the West, has been the African Union. But don't forget that the African Union established a system of standby brigades, which were there's yes, one in yes. East Africa, one in yeah. West Africa, one in Southern Africa, and they have been trained, they're well trained and financed by uh, the Americans essentially, yeah. and they could have been deployed. And the Nigerians um, said that they would not tolerate another coup in, in Africa. Well, I mean, I'm afraid we've had loads now. We've had Niger, we've had Gabon. Uh, you know, the, Burkina and, Faso, I believe. Exactly. And the problem is that the Nigerians, frankly, have decided not to act. Why? Why have the Nigerians decided not to act? And why can't the African Union act? And uh, why are these brigades lying idle? I think that really you, you have to, in a sense, ask yourself, the question, in, in, I mean, to get an answer, you get it in a slightly different context. Why is there only one war that was ever fought by the United Nations? And that was the Korean War. 1953. Exactly. And the only 50 to 53, sorry. The only yeah. reason that it happened was because the Soviet Union walked out of the Security Council and the United States got it through. Ever since then, it's always been blocked. And that, in a sense, shows you why you can't run these operations multilaterally. Mm. The African Union has exactly the same problems, uh, that they have so many divisions because, yes, there may be a majority of African states that would be in favor of this. There's always going to be somebody who says, no, 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 not in my backyard. And, and they veto they realize, it. Yeah, and they just won't go along with it. And I think the Nigerians also thought that, yes, they did manage to go in in Sierra Leone and Liberia in the past, and mm. they, they managed to do quite a good job, to be absolutely honest, through ECOWAS, the Econ Economic Community of West African mm -hmm. States. Yeah. 
But I think they feel that there are too many states which have now gone on to the other side. They can't act in all of them. They would be overstretched. Their uh, people would be defeated. And don't forget, they're fighting an enormous insurgency in um, their own, in the north of their country, with uh, Boko Haram. Yeah, I was just about to say that Nigeria itself is stretched. Yeah. And uh, Nigeria is facing political divisions as well. So it's difficult for a coherent policy to emerge. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, it's it's easy to talk about a Nigerian division than Nigerian unity. Yeah. I mean, they, they do all support their football team. But that's about where it ends. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they're, they're such, such large, large and difficult state to... Yeah. To uh, deal with, I think every president's you know hangs on by his fingernails, and I think it has only always been a man, to be honest. Mm, that's true. Uh, <clears throat> so you said Africans will suffer because of this intervention. In what way? Uh, because again, some of my friends have been telling me, both Africans and and the French, that some of these coups are popular, including the coup in Niger. Well, I try to explain that in the, in the way about the social media issue, but I'm not suggesting they aren't. Okay. But, you know, because the, of the propaganda that the <coughs> Russians put out, uh, so people basically think these are in, in our interest. Exactly. And, but, and, and, and therefore, you know, they're, they're misinformed. But in a sense, you know, what have most African states actually delivered, especially for their young people? Hmm. I mean, they've nothing. No, there is hardly a state really you can rely on. There aren't any jobs. Uh, agriculture has been allowed to decline. So what have they got to lose in a sense? They reckon the current system is, is a failure. Well, let's try something else. But let me just go on to another example, which is the situation in Sudan. Where yes, the, the, very important. Exactly, where yeah. the RSF, the Rapid Support Force, um, Hemeti, who is in a sense, was based in, in both on, in, the, in the far west and in Chad, is now on the offensive. He looks as if he's going to take over Darfur. Mm. He looks as if he's going to take control of Khartoum. I don't think that the, the army has much control in Khartoum any longer at all. They are losing positions in the west. They are, they've moved their headquarters to Port Sudan. Oh, that's basically retreat, really. Absolutely. They are bang on the sea so that they can jump on a boat and leave. Exactly. And the question is, who, in a sense, is on which side? And you begin to see how these things have worked out. Now, it, has, it wasn't a coup. There was a coup earlier in Sudan, but this wasn't a coup. It's just a straightforward fight between two generals. And It's civil war. It is. And the, the, on the one hand, you have the army led by al-Burhan, and uh, he looks to Egypt and the United States and maybe to the Saudi Arabia. And on the other hand, you have Hameti, who looks to the United Arab Emirates, um, and he looks to the Wagner Group and Putin, who have been using the gold that he extracts from the mines in the area that he controls, and it helps Putin fund his Ukrainian war effort. The, the gold is flown out via Syria. It was well documented by uh, various uh, American newspapers. The New York Times did a fantastic job on this. Mm-hmm. So did CNN. They have shown these relationships. And it, it is now looks as if this is really paying big dividends for Putin and for uh, Hameti. 
and that he's going to be the one who will come out on top. He may, in fact, be the, the next leader of Sudan. And then what will Africa do about this? Somebody controlled, or at least highly influenced, by outside powers. So here's a question. Why is the US losing? This is the world's biggest economy. This is a country with 800 military bases. When I uh, visited uh, even Rwanda, uh, there were US army officers in some conference. So the whole place um, seems to crawl with the US military officers flying in, flying out, uh, supposedly improving the security of the continent. Why is the US-led West on the back foot? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that they actually have 800 military bases. They have... Not around the world. Yes, not, but, but even that is, is I think, is, is too strong. Mm. I think that they have a, a, a far smaller number of proper bases, but mm. they have relationships and places mm. where they can leave things and they do have a few offices, but not really a base in, in, in the not world. Not 800, but that. they have 800 locations around yeah, the world, for sure. That's absolutely yeah. true. They used to call them lily pads, for goodness sake, as if they were a frog that was going to jump between them. The Americans have always had one tendency, which is, you know, to hell with the outside world. We are America. Why do we need anybody else? And that's still strong. So that uh, goes back uh, ages ago, right to the earliest days of the Republic. And, absolutely. and of course, it uh, has resurfaced time and again. Woodrow Wilson um, negotiated uh, to not... Uh, a large degree, but to a considerable degree, the the Treaty of Versailles and yeah. and uh, thought of the League of Nations and even promised Armenia uh, a, a big state, much bigger than the Armenia of today. And all of that was lost because immediately when he returned, uh, Congress lost interest. Exactly, and that that I mean, look look how long it took them to get into the Second World War. They were very reluctant to do that. Yeah, and that is a whole tense. In in a sense, Trump represents that as well because. He has said, you know, why are we getting involved in Ukraine? I mean, he has his own problems with Putin, uh, who probably has a hold over him through, uh, shall we say, some of the honey trap pictures that he, he took for, of, of uh, Trump when he was in, in Moscow. So there, there's a whole relationship there mm. that, that wishes to see a declining impact and cost to the American taxpayer. It's a, sort of to hell with the rest of the world. We're a big enough country on our own, worry about our own borders worry about our own people, the rest of the world can go to hang and look, and we're not going to be their, their uh, policemen any longer. And I think that that is one tendency that uh, it has, in a sense, undermines everything that Biden has been trying to do. And he's very engaged with the world. And that's one of his great strengths. And I think he's done a good job with difficult, in difficult circumstances. But Africa could lose out because the West is just not that engaged anymore. France is pulling out. The Brits have almost nothing left in, in Africa. And the Americans are, shall we say, reluctant to be engaged. And the Russians uh, are giving it more time, focus and energy. On the cheap. I mean, these are small companies. Uh, the Wagner Group and uh, Redat are both, in a sense, private enterprises that they can work through. It's a cheap and cheerful way of having your own uh, your ends. In a sense, it goes back to the sort of Elizabethan age when... Privateers. Yeah, privateers, exactly. Mm -hmm. Walter Raleigh and people like that that that, uh, that Queen Elizabeth gave the, the green light to and said, you go and conduct my foreign policy for me. And rob Spanish galleons. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. 
<laughs> the silver from Latin America, which the Spanish are robbing from the natives, you well, rob them from the Spaniards. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They, they, they. Somebody else dug it up. Somebody else stole it, so we'll steal it back. Exactly. Now, it's funny. You're the second person who is mentioning this. Another person was talking about it, but uh, he, shall we say, is in the UN and is involved in peacekeeping operations. And obviously, he was speaking off the record. But he said. Um, our UN peacekeeping forces are so bureaucratic and they have so much red tape that they are useless. And uh, a few Wagner group people, when they show up, they get results and they are just efficient. They may not obviously be nice and cuddly and human rights be damned, but there's no gainsaying the fact that they are effective. Well, of course, the United Nations has no troops. They only have troops that they borrow Correct. from other states. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I visited... But they're there in Congo still, next to I know, I, I visited Indian and Pakistani troops in uh, eastern Congo, mm -hmm. and uh, we were following one story, which was, frankly, how the Indian troops were selling weapons and ammunition to the uh, rebels for gold, and they, they were the rebels they were supposed to be suppressing. And, and they Pakistan, did a great trade. Pakistanis weren't doing that? Of course they did it too. I'm just saying we, we came across the Indians who were doing it. Uh, and uh, when we raised this with the, uh, with the, the Indian officers, they yeah. were very uh, upset about it. And the, the United Nations was even more upset yeah. because they, they have nobody else to turn to. Mm -hmm. So given that reality, uh, what does this mean, let's say, for Sudan? Uh, which already has now become two countries, Sudan and South Sudan. What does this mean for Sudan? Because I'm sure this is round one. Surely the ethnic groups that have been ousted in the current civil war won't sit silent forever. They won't. And uh, again, it is a replication of the what I was talking about early, earlier with the Arab-African uh, split. I mean... Uh, Hameti is, is, uh, sees himself as an Arab. He, yes. His whole relationship goes back to Colonel Gaddafi mm. and uh, the Libyans who established the group out of which he came mm -hmm. and the, the group that they are And the killing. Libyans did act very um, decisively when it came to African ma matters. Gaddafi took a great interest Absolutely in Absolutely, he it. did. And the, ki the people that Hameti are killing mm. are the Masalit who are Africans. Mm -hmm. So... Does this mean that Sudan may break up even f further? It's already broken up. Does it mean Sudan breaks up into con its constituent parts? I'm not going to go around predicting the future. I think that's madness. Uh -huh. uh, it's impossible. One can't, one can't know. Mm. There, you can point to the current tensions, mm. and this is possible, but, uh, you know... Who knows? It, who knows? I mean, you know, this is... It's, so, it's not possible to predict. So economically, then, with all this violence, trade will suffer investment will suffer, there will be fewer jobs. Uh, what happens to other things? Uh, the Sahel is also short on water. In fact, some people say the spike in violence is because there is uh, a pressure on resources. 90% of Lake Chad is now dry. All of these things are true. Uh, and you know, none of this helps the growth in Africa. And, you know, there were the, these great plans to to build this green wall across the whole oh, of yes. Africa and yeah, plant yeah. it and, you know, re reforest yeah. it, which is desperately needed. Yeah. But, uh, you know, all of these things get put on the back foot because who knows who's going to be in power um, in, the, in the country in the, in the, in the next few, few years. So population is going up 
and and resources are constrained. And so grim grim days ahead. I'm afraid I hate to be a, a bearer of bad tidings. <laughs> uh, the one thing I would always say about Africa is that somehow Africans somehow managed to salvage something out of bad days. And perhaps we should just also look at the African diaspora who send back such huge quantities of money now to Africa, equal to all official aid. and It exceeds, I'm told. That's right, figures, in some aid, places. Yeah. And I, I think that that is, you know, perhaps these relationships, we can, we can look to Africans to, in the end, solve their own problems. That's why I think, you know, whether it's the French uh, or the uh, or the Russians, in the end, everybody will, shall we say, get bogged down the, in the sands of the Sahara, and it'll be Africans who who now survive, who now flourish, and in the long run, I'm still optimistic about the continent. Well, on that happy note, Martin, thank you for your time. Pleasure. Bye for now.